Every now and then, something happens to change your perspective, doesn't it? Uh, You've been going along quite comfortably with some set assumptions about how the world works, uh, and then something happens to expose the fact that you've had it wrong all along. And so in that famous sketch from David Mitchell and Robert Webb, you've got a German soldier committed to the Nazi cause, assuming as the propaganda would that he's on the right side. But his colleague starts noticing things that are a bit ghoulish, and it doesn't seem to add up to him. And so he starts asking questions, and eventually he wonders, are we the baddies? And that's sort of what's happening to Jonah here in this final part of the book, that bears his name. Here's a man who's been committed to his cause. Largely, it's the cause of himself and his own agenda. Now, he's having some deep truths about himself exposed. And if he had any self-awareness, any shame, really, he'd be asking that question, am I the baddie? That's a question that's hanging over this chapter here. And it's the question that we must face ourselves. I read a book over the weekend by James Carey. Uh, He's a comedy writer and a Christian, and he's written about joking about religion. And I must say that my eyes bulged slightly when I turned a page and I found a chapter that had a heading entitled, Why You Shouldn't Start a Sermon with a Joke. And I was slightly chastised. (laughs) But I read on, and actually I couldn't agree with his point uh, more. Uh, His argument is this. If we assume that we need to find ways to make the Bible funny, we might be missing the fact that the Bible is in some ways funny already. And that is definitely true here in Jonah chapter 4. I've argued these past few weeks that Jonah is a kind of a satire. It's a comedy with a purpose. And chapter 4 brings the funny in a big way. The closest modern equivalent to this, I think, is a comedy sketch scene from one of those sketch shows. You've got the ridiculous, the larger-than-life character of Jonah. And in the story so far, we've seen Jonah as the prodigal prophet who runs away when God calls him to go somewhere. We've seen Jonah as the reluctant evangelist who whispers into his megaphone on the outskirts of the city that God has sent him to. And amazingly, despite all of that, in chapter 3, the people of Nineveh have turned from their sin, they've given up their evil ways, and God in his mercy has relented from bringing the judgment that he'd warned of. Now we find Jonah, well, he's like the stroppy teenager, isn't he? He's having an almighty sulk about all that has taken place. And then alongside Jonah in this conversation, the straight man in the sketch, if you like, it's the Lord. The Lord is perfectly wise and relentlessly reasonable. He simply asks some straightforward questions and he exposes the absurdity of Jonah's position. Uh, So bear with me, please. Uh, I want us to hear in Jonah the voice of the stroppy teenager this lunchtime, but I do want to see the patience and kindness of God. Uh, Here then is the first of two headings for us. How to have a proper sulk against God. How to have a proper sulk 
against God. Uh, Look down at Jonah 3 and verse 10 for a moment. Here's where the last chapter ended. Uh, When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. And in narrative terms, you could argue that this would make a fitting end to the story. God's warning of judgment against the city of Nineveh has been hanging over this whole story from the start. Would they hear the warning? Would they turn from evil? Would the Lord stay his hand of judgment on account of their changed ways? That plotline has all been resolved. And if Jonah was a typical missionary, we'd think that he'd have good news to write home about. Because missionaries do that, don't they? Uh, They write to the people who are supporting them and they give updates on their work. Slow progress, but seeing some encouraging signs of fruit. God is good. That kind of thing. Jonah's letter. Whole city of 120,000 people turned from their evil ways. It's awful. God is terrible. I mean, just look how chapter 4 begins. Uh, But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? But God has acted in mercy to stay his hand of judgment against a spiritually lost people. And Jonah says, that is so unfair. I wish I'd never been born. It's the teenager, isn't it, going to his room, slamming the door. It's a comic overreaction. And it is a particularly inappropriate response for someone who's supposed to be a prophet of God. But it is a common reaction isn't it? We do sometimes, often even, we do have a problem with the mercy and the grace of God. Grace can seem unfair. With my work at Christianity Explored, one of my occasional tasks is to respond to queries that people have written in on our website. The most visited page on the website is, how can a loving God send anyone to hell? And you might expect some queries coming in objecting to the judgment and the wrath of God. They do from time to time. But the opposite can be true as well. I had one the other day asking how it could be fair for God to forgive people who had committed evil deeds, murder, abuse, other awful things. Does that evil not matter to God? Do those sins not count to God? How could he let people go unpunished for those things? My correspondent was glad that God was angry against sin. He had a problem with the mercy of God that would not treat people as their sins deserve. And you need only read the newspapers to see a desire for justice in our culture Uh, Think back to November, those terrorist, uh, that terrorist attack on London Bridge. Uh, There, the perpetrator had been imprisoned on terror offences and released early on parole, and many people saw in that a leniency that seemed to them to be unjust. 
Or think of some of those awful abuse scandals that have hit Hollywood and recently the church as well. Powerful figures getting away with evil actions for a long time and then all too often a cover-up too. And it's wrong because evil is evil and we want justice to be done, don't we? It's why Jonah's accusation against God in chapter 4 is so important to hear rightly. Because here is a man railing against God for not punishing evil as he thinks it is deserved. He thinks that God has gone soft. He thinks that God's grace is unfair. Well, Jonah's mission was to the people of Nineveh in the ancient empire of Assyria, And they were notorious enemies of God's people. They were brutal in battle. They celebrated the torture of those they'd conquered. They stood as a looming threat over the people of Israel. And Jonah doesn't want to associate with them. So for starters, when he's called to go there, he heads in the opposite direction. And now once the people of Nineveh have turned from evil, Jonah is upset because he was hoping to see them destroyed. So, verse 5, Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. And there he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. The strong implication is that Jonah is sitting outside the city, overlooking it, hoping that God's judgment will come on it after all. What we learned from Jonah from his prayer in chapter 2 is that he's quite happy to be on the receiving end of God's mercy when he recognises that he's in the need of it. But as soon as they receive mercy, as soon as the other, as soon as the outsider, the undesirable receives mercy, well, he wants to distance himself from God and from his work in the world. Jonah is upset about it all and he throws a sulk. What happens next, though? What happens next shows us some hope and teaches us something positive to take away with us. And that is our second and our final point here. How to have a proper relationship with God. How to have a proper relationship with God. Track with me from verse 6. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head, to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun arose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? about the plant. It is, he said, and I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. And now in one sense, Jonah's sulk is continuing, that the scene is still darkly comic. Unaware of the irony here, Jonah is very happy about God bringing comfort in his distress. Just as the Lord had provided a fish to carry him to shore, now the Lord provides a kind of vine to shelter him. And he's very happy about the Lord's provision and protection. And then, in in a verse that vicars love in the King James Version, the Lord ordained a worm. The Lord provides a worm, which eats the plant, which leaves Jonah miserable and fed up with life again. 
this lived out parable is teaching Jonah a striking truth about himself and about God's dealings with him. It's showing him that by himself he has no hope or help in the world. It's showing him that by God's mercy, everything he has is only first God's gracious gift to him. Jonah said from the belly of the fish, in my distress I called to the Lord and he answered me. He prayed, I will say salvation comes from the Lord. But while he is happy to receive God's grace, he doesn't seem to depend on it here. He certainly has no compassion for those who don't know that same grace for themselves. And the Lord challenges him to get his perspective in order. He cares about this plant. He loves it even, though it only provides a little shelter for a short time. How much more? How much more should he long for the people of Nineveh to come under the Lord's saving protection from his coming judgment? But instead, Jonah is angry and is resentful. Jonah is ashamed to know and serve the God who would show grace and compassion towards enemy people. It's fine for him and perhaps for those he considers to be God's people, but he thinks it's quite wrong for God to care about the outsiders, about the nations. And we must ask that same question of ourselves today. Because maybe there are some here who feel that they are on the outside when it comes to the church and to Christian things. Maybe to feel far away from God, uh, made to feel unwelcome even among God's people. One message from this book of Jonah, loud and clear, is that God's mercy and his grace extends to those who are considered his enemies, those seemingly far away from him. Those are the ones he longs to draw near. And as we talk of evil and sin and and justice and judgment, uh, the Lord issues warnings because he wants us to hear them. They always come with, they're always followed by an invitation to turn away from sin and a former life and to turn towards God and a new life. That's the authentic mark of God's people. So whoever you are and whatever you've done, the Lord is calling you and he will welcome you and accept you as he's promised and as he's shown here. For those who are Christian believers though, this story poses a different kind of challenge It confronts us with the prejudice of the prophet Jonah. And it shows us how his heart was against the very people the Lord has a heart for. That is, lost and far away people. And we must ask ourselves, what passing comfort do we value more highly than making known the salvation of God to those who don't know him? Who is it that we would be embarrassed to associate with and be accused of being a friend of? What missionary calling, what evangelistic endeavour would you hesitate to take up? Or would you boycott altogether because you find those people unworthy of God's grace and compassion? 
as someone who has lived for a little while in the northeast of England, I was amused to read the other day of a trip that the travelling preacher John Wesley made in May 1742. He wrote about it in his diary. Uh, He said, We came to Newcastle about six, and after a short refreshment, walked into the town. Uh, I was surprised. So much drunkenness, cursing and swearing, even from the mouths of little children, do I never remember to have seen and heard before in so small a compass of time. And it smacks of judgmentalism, doesn't it, at first glance? Uh, Here are these people who are such sinners. I was shocked and appalled. But that's not how Wesley viewed them. He goes on to write in his diary, Surely this place is ripe for him who came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And it isn't about Newcastle or the Northeast. It is about the world that we live in. Surely this place is ripe for him who came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That there, that is the missionary heart of God. It's the heart that is for the outsider, for the far away person, for the enemy of God. So hear this cliffhanger ending to the story, and then let's think how we ought to respond. Verse 10, but the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern? For the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals. Jonah wants to take God for granted, his blessings, his salvation even, but he has forgotten that he, at heart, is no different to the Ninevites that he has treated so disdainfully. Through this story, we see again and again the patience and the mercy of God to bear with him. It's a call to recognize the mercy that we have received and then to act in response to that with grace and compassion and gospel proclamation to others who haven't heard. Because that is the gospel. It's the gospel that Jonah saw and experienced played out in his life. It is the gospel that we have now seen writ large by that one who is greater than Jonah, by the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what he came to do. All of the loose threads of this story of Jonah are tied together in the person and the work of Jesus. How can a God of perfect justice against sin act in mercy towards those who are guilty of sin? Jonah wants to die when he sees such grace. Jesus does die in order to achieve such grace. He offers himself in the place of sinful people so they can be made right with God. Their sin is not ignored. It is not overlooked. It is dealt with and rightly punished. But in a perfect substitute, once for all, so that they can be forgiven and free. How can a God of friendship and a family bring close people who are far away and enemies of him? Jonah wants to build a barrier between himself and God and the outsiders. Jesus dies to knock down that barrier, abolishing the division once and for all. God inviting enemies 
to become family. God reconciling those who were lost and bringing them home. So if you want a gospel summary to take away from the book of Jonah, I suggest this. This is the Apostle Paul writing to Timothy, and I think channeling the message of Jonah for us today. He writes this, Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. So, worst of sinners? Well, Jesus came for you. And worst of sinners? Well, know the patience of Jesus in you and through you It's an example of what he longs to do in others. And knowing it for ourselves, well, how could we not speak of it to those around us? And now, then, as Paul goes on, and now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen.